Hey listeners, it's Andy, and I'm here to see if you've tried Audible yet. With an incredible selection of audiobooks, it is the perfect way to dive deeper into the stories upon which some of your favorite films are based. Audible members get a credit every month to redeem on any audiobook they like, plus access to a huge plus catalog of podcasts, originals, and more. Just imagine listening to the books that inspired movies like The Bourne Identity, Moneyball, or sci-fi classics like Dune. The best part? You can try Audible free for 30 days and get your first audiobook on them. It's a great way to experience storytelling while supporting this podcast. To get started, go to thenextreel.com slash audible or text thenextreel to 500-500. Listen to incredible audiobooks and support the show today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Big is over. I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. <laughs> For Josh Baskin, life was a little unfair. Until he made a little wish. I wish I were big. Sweetheart, it's 7.30, are you up? Josh! 20th Century Fox presents... Tom Hanks. Ah! Big. I turned into a grown-up, Mom. I made this wish on a machine, and it turned me into a grown-up. So now what? Get a job. Cannot get a job. I play with all of this stuff, and then I tell them what I think. Can they pay you for that? Suckers! Vice president, he's only been here a week. See that girl over there in the red? She'll wrap her legs around you so tight, you'll be begging for mercy. Well, I'll stay away from her then. I loved your ideas on the squeezy doll line. Thanks. <laughs> What were you like when you were younger? Go well, I wasn't much different. Who are you? I'm his girlfriend. I want to spend the night with you. Do you mean sleep over? Yeah. Okay. But I get to be on top. What is so special about Baskin? He's a grown-up. How do I feel about what? How do you, how do you feel about me? You're only young once. This is important! I'm your best friend. What's more important than that, huh? But for Josh, I miss my family, Susan, and I want to go home. Oh my God, you're married! It just might last a lifetime. You'll never forget Tom Hanks. It's Beluga. Andy, it's big, and this seems like a very strange loophole to get big into the next real catalog by doing a John Hurd series, but we got it. We got it. We did it. In yes, we did. the catalog. Uh, so, John Hurd series, that's why we're doing this, because we're celebrating the movies of John Hurd, and you might argue 
that the movies we've done with John Hurt before this one have actually more John Hurt in them. This could be the journalist-adjacent John Hurt movie from the last series. <laughs> like, eh, it's got some John Hurt in it. You know, look back at our, like, Richard Dysart series. I think we're just celebrating the actor in whatever their performances are because, you yeah. know, he's not... Uh, Richard Dysart, like the movies, yeah. largely he kind of did a lot of really f- interesting supporting characters. And I think that's the same with John Hurd. Some really interesting lead characters and some interesting supporting characters. I think so, too. And he's, he is an important antagonist in this movie. And that's the, yes. that's the important part. Yeah. And in every film that we have in this series, uh, we will have covered every film that he uh, starred in that was directed by a woman. So. Um, we did the two with Joan McLean Silver. Now we're kicking off the two that he uh, does with Penny Marshall. Oh, Penny Marshall. Oh, Penny Marshall. Oh, Penny. Uh, so we like uh, John Hurd and um, we like this movie. And we should just say up front, which version did you watch? I watched the extended cut, which I had never seen. And it's funny, you realize how much you've watched a movie when you're watching an extended cut and you go like, oh, this is new. And like, I swear, like constantly, I'm like, okay, that's all the new stuff. And I could just pick it out. It's just, I've seen this movie uh, just so much that it is just like, the movie itself is just like, you know, part of me. Love it. You and I come from very different places on this movie. Hmm. Yeah, I know. Hmm. I... I love this movie. I adore this movie. I have very fond memories of it. I have not seen it in years, and I certainly haven't seen it as many times as you have seen it. Therefore, watching the extended cut was a complete mystery to me. Like, I, and I, I can't wait to talk about why. I could not pick out specifically the stuff that was extended versus original. Well, what's interesting is, like, I haven't seen it in 20-plus years either. And that's what's so interesting is like, I, I just watched it so much, probably between 88 and 2000. <laughs> it's just like, you watch it every day leading up to 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah, I just like, it's so stuck in my head. It's very funny. Very funny. Okay. Uh, well, this film was nominated PG upon its release. And, you know, it's for mild sex and nudity, uh, mild violence. There's some punching and fighting and stuff. Uh, some profanity. This is one of the rare... PG movies that came out uh, in this period that actually had a, an F word in it. Um, usually once that uh, was said in a film, it turned it into PG-13. Um, and, uh, you know, some drinking and stuff, but largely it's a fairly safe, tame movie. Hey, you want to watch this movie and help us out? Well, you can. If you see an Apple or an Amazon link to the movie in our show notes, just click on it. It'll take you right to their site. You can rent or buy the movie. And as we now know, at the iTunes store, you get the extended cut as a bonus feature. So it's a great way to check out both cuts of the movie and also you know, help the show out a little bit. We are, uh, we've got some merch. And um, if you go right now to truestory.fm slash TNR merch uh, over to our T Public store, then you will be able to find the Welcome to Smutty Nose, everyone's favorite stop on the way to New Hampshire um, t-shirt from the way to the water, way to water. Now, if you go now, you'll get one that is sort of broken because I don't love it. And I'm, <laughs> I literally have the design file open on my 
computer right now. It's on my screen and I'm making changes to it. So if you want the broken one, then you, you better you better hurry, is all I'm saying. Because eventually it'll have the word island on it. That's how you know when it has it's, island. You know what? You what? know what, though, Pete? What? It, this I feel like this is kind of a secret for people because this this could turn into the postage stamp with the upside down airplane on it. <laughs> I'm just saying. That's right. That's There's right. that chance. You did. You, that that's chance. right. Set it up. <laughs> so get it while you can because it's going to be worth a lot of money in a few hundred years. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And and I will say you could get it in you can get it in any of the colors that you want, but I encourage you to get it in the mud crap brown that it's defaulted to, because that'll really that'll really show what you think of the movie. <laughs> uh, well, we are featuring audio reviews from you, our dear listeners. We'd love to hear more of your voices on the show. Uh, just send us an audio file to reviews at truestory.fm as soon as you watch the movie. We just might end up showcasing your voice on the show. Remember, we do record about two weeks in advance. So, uh, you know, as soon as you watch the movie, get it sent to us at reviews at truestory.fm. And if you're wondering where you can see what movies we're talking about in the coming weeks and for the rest of the season, you can find our entire series rundown on our Letterboxd HQ page. And while you're there, sign up for a pro or patron membership with the discount code NEXTREEL or just visit thenextreel.com slash letterboxd and you'll get 20% off. It works for renewals as well. And if you uh, are looking for other ways to support the show, uh, consider becoming a member of the show. We use Patreon's memberful platform where it's built right into our site. And you just go to the website at truestory.fm slash TNR membership. And you can join at either a month to month rate or at the annual rate. And you get all sorts of fantastic treats. Members get early access to every episode and they also get so many bonuses. They get bonuses. Oh my gosh. Oh, he has so many bonuses. It's, it is, uh, uh, we get a bonus, uh, with the, the flick chart re-ranking every week, right? We do that. We get a bonus with the retake every episode. Week. <laughs> oh, baby. Slow down, that's horse. What it, that's what it feels Holy like. Cow. It feels like we're doing a retake every week. <laughs> and then we do the cheating one, uh, where the flick chart cheating, Andy cheats one. And, um, and, and then, I don't know, by this time next year, we'll probably do a summary episode that summarizes everything that happened on the retake and the flick chart episode for all I know the way this thing happens. <laughs> like a virus, we spread podcasts. That's that's our goal, yes. <laughs> we need that on a shirt. <laughs> the next reel spreads like a virus. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's what our patient zero shirt is, right? It absolutely, it's our exactly right. Oh. That's right. That's right. And you can also listen in while we record these episodes. We have a link. It's truestory.fm slash TNR live. And you can find out when we're doing all of the recordings. You, and then you can also add it to your own calendar. Just head over to truestory.fm slash TNR membership to learn more about membership tiers. Most it'll cost you is $5 a month or $55 a year. Man Cave! On this couch, wearing clothes made from recycled plastic... And I haven't showered since Thursday. Mandy Fabian. And on this couch, lover of all things real housewives and fart jokes... Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was a good one. Oh, God. Mandy Kaplan. 
Each week, these best friends and polar opposites hunt down a movie, TV show, or trend. Whether it's Brene Brown or Little House on the Prairie. Or something good. Okay, that's unnecessary. And drag it back to the cave to duke it out. I'm just saying the Ingles never break into song and it needs Not it. everything has everything to be. Everything needs music. You think everything Schindler's List should be a musical? Everything would be better Ugh, if everyone would worst. just sing. It's the worst. Dance. I should sing You're that. You're the worst. Uh, ladies, can we get back to the... Sorry, uh... Tune into the Man Cave wherever you get your podcasts to see if the friendship survives. You're so dramatic. It's a comedy podcast. So's your face. <gasps> That's a good one. Big Andy. So we watched the we watched the um, uh, extended edition. Yes. That's that's what I was going to say. And I could not tell. And I have to just tell you as a as a just to, to start. I really uh, enjoyed it, first of all. My family thought that it was a little bit long. And in fact, what was funny is they they started saying it's a little bit long because I think there's a half hour of extra stuff. Correct. And they were I, I paused it to look at where they started saying this is getting long now. And it was exactly 30 minutes to the end of the movie. Interesting. I thought that was interesting. really interesting. I did not share that experience. I really enjoyed what the extra footage offered whatever it was the movie felt whole to me it felt <laughs> it felt complete um like like there was enough time in all of the different stages of josh's adult self that i i felt rewarded from it nothing felt rushed nothing it, it just felt good i don't remember what my feeling was i can't imagine i ever stopped and thought oh this movie feels rushed w- with the original but now the extended version has become um uh, my favorite, <laughs> my favorite version. What do you think? I I definitely enjoyed the uh, the extended version. There there was one scene toward the end where um, they, I, I I'm guessing that Howard Shore didn't have music written for the extended version because they used a piece of music from the earlier part of the film for this later part of the film, and it didn't quite fit as well as. Um, I thought it should have for that particular moment. Um, but otherwise, largely, um, I really enjoyed, uh, kind of all the additions in the extended cut. It's one of those things. I'm like, I, I mean, I, I kind of like with your family, I'm like, you know, the film was paced so perfectly the first time. I really had no issues. I didn't feel like I was missing anything. I thought the extended version really fleshed a lot of interesting things out as far mm-hmm. as kind of like, uh, you got to see Billy's home life. Uh, there was just kind of more detail. It wasn't like, here's a 10 minute scene that we're just adding in. It was like 30 seconds here, 30 seconds there. So it just kind of like, it just pads it. In, and made it feel just nice. Like it, it, it never feels like it's overstaying. It's welcome. I don't know. Like, I, I feel like both versions, um, you know, sometimes you watch an extended version and you're like, yeah, you know, I, I feel like I'll just stick with the original. And sometimes you're like, God, I don't know how I could ever have lived without all of this material from the extended version. Right. This is one where I'm like, I, I kind of like both versions. I think there's a place for, for both. Like, I think this worked really well. I was, I was happy to see that it never felt like, um, I, I'm with you. I never felt like it was overstaying its welcome. I thought they did a, a good job of of adding all this material back in. Is there is there any sort of highlight uh, bit that that you thought was particularly great, or uh, like uh, of the extended? Like, what would you show up for the extended version for? 
I, I mean, again, like that, the little more backstory with Billy and his family, just to kind of get a sense of of his family life with Francis uh, Francis Fisher as as his mom, kind of mm-hmm. the overworked mother. Um, and, and I think for me, that kind of helped a little bit getting a sense of Billy's world and why his parents probably aren't paying that much attention that he's like always gone. Yeah. Because he's always off in the city with, with uh, Josh. Yeah. And so that was certainly um, a thing that I um, enjoyed in there. I also, there was um, some elements toward the end after Josh uh, kind of tells Susan what um you know that he's he's a little boy and all this stuff and she's like you don't think there's a little girl a scared little girl inside me like i just love all of that stuff but oh so there's good. that i i know but she kind of starts like what is he talking about and she like looks in his wallet and he finds his um little id card and his um Mm-hmm. the zoltar speaks card and like when she asks him for a pack of gum and he buys her bubblelicious like, oh my god and i and i saw that coming and i'm like oh that is so perfect because that's yeah. exactly what a kid would do like never buy trident oh my god yeah i hated it when my parents would give me trident gum when i was a kid you know and so it's it was like oh my god like that was such a perfect moment so those little things that she starts getting these little clues like, I just really liked the way that they, that she was starting to piece this unbelievable scenario together and start seeing how it actually fit. And so there were moments like that, that I just, I really appreciated that they were in here. And cause I, I felt like they worked just really well. And, and also there was more development of her change. I, there were a lot of stuff with Susan that I really liked. Like there was that moment that, you know, she and Josh are working late and she's kind of like dancing through the office and uh, Mr. McMillan is leaving and he's just like, oh, hey, Susan, you guys working late? It's great seeing you looking so, you know, happy. You've been really kind of, you know, and it's just like those moments. I just, there were some of those that just, I thought were uh, just worked really well for the movie. That was my stuff, right? It was her development. And I felt like that, like like her sequences in the middle of the movie, I found super rewarding because it made her loss at the end of the movie as unbelievable as it is. It made that just sing for me. That turn at the end when he's wearing that ridiculous oversized, young Josh is wearing the oversized double-breasted suit and she gets that look. It was just perfect. It was perfect. And now, in hindsight, I can't imagine that turn and that look without uh, knowing more about her character and how far she was able to come from when we first meet her, when she barges into the office and is all upset, to, you know, when she actually starts to um, sort of emotionally de-age a little bit as as she finds more of herself and the fun part of herself uh, over the course of, of that second act of the film, um, I, I thought was incredibly special. Well, and that's such a, a magical part of the film anyway. And I mean, just as an aside, in my research, I learned that the costume department for Susan, they really worked with her costume specifically in the movie to really develop her her look starting to be much more uptight at the beginning of the film and evolve over the course of the film to start kind of her outfits start reflecting that kind of inner child um, yeah. sense that she develops over the course of the film. And I just love that. But that I think that whole thing speaks so much about the kind of the theme of this story and like that idea of growing up, but then also like keeping your inner child. Mm-hmm. And I love the that feel in the movie so much. And especially with Susan, 
one of my favorite lines in the movie has always been when she's arguing with Paul and he's like, what's so great about Baskin? And she's like, he's a grown up. Yes. <laughs> like, yes. Oh my God, that's just perfect. Oh, yes. So good. It is absolutely fantastic. I, I think that speaks to that whole point of this idea of, of, you know, how people can grow up and you kind of close off so many parts of who you are in your life and stuff. And, and you don't have to. And I think there's, there's something about retaining some of that innocence, not necessarily the naivete, but kind of an innocence that allows you to kind of see things in, in, in a way where you can appreciate stuff more. And I, I, you know, I, especially as parents now, it's like, those are the sorts of things that you're always looking for with your own kids, trying to figure out how can I get them to remember these little things as they get older so they they don't stop appreciating that sort of stuff. Okay, speaking as uh, dads, your, your son is how old right now? 11. Okay, which means your daughter's what, 13, 14? 15. <sighs> well, that's too old. She's going to be driving in a month. Don't. Don't even start with me. Yeah, don't care for it. Don't care for it. Look, here's the thing. I Mine are now, I guess my youngest is 15, but I don't have a reference child anymore <laughs> that is closer. That <laughs> is closer to Josh Baskin's young age. And the whole time I'm sitting here looking at these two boys and they're trucking off to New York. New York City, getting a dive hotel room, um, you know, going to the bank, like doing all of those things. At, at any point, do you look at your son and think like, two years, you could be out getting your first dive hotel room? Like, did that <laughs> did that feel legit to you? It's it, you know, it's it's interesting because I, I definitely think there's an element. I, I mean, you know, I don't want to say no, because I think kids they're, they have a lot more strength in them and are a lot more resilient than sometimes oh, yes. you even realize. It's just yes, yes, they're not yes. always being pushed and tested. Right. And so I definitely think they, they could figure a lot of this stuff out, especially kids these days with what they can accomplish with their phones. I mean, it's just it's crazy. You know, I have a feeling um, they would do just fine. I don't want to push them to a place where they feel they need to go, uh, you know, get a room in a dive hotel. <laughs> not quite there. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I, I definitely think there are elements uh, within the story where the stuff that they were figuring out, uh, they fluctuated as needed as far as like, uh, you know, does that work as well if he's 13? Maybe he can do it. You know, he'll he'll get away with this stuff because Tom Hanks is playing it. And sure, maybe it would make more sense if it, he was 15 or 16 or maybe he's acting like he was actually, you know, more like eight or nine. But largely, I think. There's something that just feels very young about it, and I think it it um, it comes across without causing me any issues. I it it doesn't after a while, but mostly I think because Tom Hanks is so incredible at playing the let's just say thirteen to fifteen year old Josh as an adult, uh, and I re this is the thing I remember so clearly from my first time watching this movie is just how incredible you know this entire experience with him as a quote young person was in this movie every facial expression his eyes that the way he he let his face go slack when he was confused about something 
the way he runs across the street. Yes, just runs <laughs> his across arms the street. like flailing out. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and and I, I actually think between him and John Hurd, the "I don't get it" line is really fascinating, right? Because he is saying it like, and I totally believe this as a 13-year-old kid, and then also, um, you know, John Hurd making fun of him as a 13-year-old kid. Like, that mockery is, I I think, particularly (laughs) well-honed. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's very effective. And that's, I mean, it's so clear. Like, I mean, I was already a fan of Tom Hanks, as everybody who's ever listened to this podcast for any period of uh, time would know. I've talked a lot about my Tom Hanks love. But before this film, I already, you know, was a huge fan of his stuff. I had his movie posters all over my room. And like, I just, and actually, after this movie, I actually got from the theater the big standee that was eight feet tall. That was probably eight feet wide. It was like a, a trifold, like this enormous thing. And I actually, I like, I had it set up in my room for years. Um, I ended up um, unable to <laughs> kind of keep up with it. And I passed it off to a friend of the cho- show, Chad Stoops, who I think actually still has it. Um, at least oh. last time I checked. So um, it was just one of those things that I, I loved having. Um, Back when movie theaters would, you know, give you stuff like that just uh, because they didn't want to (laughs) fill up their dumpster with it. But, um, I mean, it's so clear when you see, like, his progression from, like, his early days. And, I mean, I thought, you know, he's fantastic in in his early 80s films. But when he hits this point, it just – it becomes clear, like, now we see America's favorite dad, Tom Hanks, and all the stuff that he's done. It's like, oh, yeah, of course. You can see it right here in this film. Like, this is a guy who isn't just the bachelor party guy, um, but there's there's more to what he's doing and and what he can deliver here. And I think he was very smart as an actor, Ted – to talk to Penny Marshall and ask to have David Moscow, who plays young Josh, um, to act through the scenes with Susan before he did. So he could watch what an actual 13-year-old did and how he behaved and kind of his his um, movements and stuff, and then kind of like take that in and and really kind of inhabit that that role. I, I just very smart of him. Well, and I, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure necessarily enough credit is given to David Moscow, right, for his, uh, I, I think he does an incredible job of, of um, you know, uh, I, I think being a, uh, you know, mature 13-year-old, right? He, he, I find him believable in their family dynamic. I, I really, uh, I really like him. And I know they, they, in production, they went the other way, right? They gave him the, the chance to start and, and, let Tom Hanks sort of build his performance off of Moscow's performance. But I yeah. think together they are fantastic uh, yeah. as, as a pair. I think that casting is just brilliant. Um, and they look alike. Too. They look like, alike. They, they, yeah. That really plays. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, I felt like, I, you know, I know Moscow's done, he's done other stuff, a lot of TV, um, but it wasn't really, I, I mean, he's, he, I feel like I wouldn't have been able to make the connection that it was him when I saw, you know, riding in cars with boys or honey or, you know, um, one of those, one of his like 2000s movies. Um, but he's pretty steadily working ish. Hasn't done yeah, anything since yeah. one last night in 2018, but, uh, busy guy. Yeah, yeah, has definitely kept himself busy, which has been, uh, which has been great to see. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, he's he's one of those those kid actors who has found a way to kind of keep himself busy enough um, doing stuff. And I think mm-hmm. he, you know, I mean, largely he's doing a lot of producing. In fact, I just saw the trailer um, this weekend for Strawberry Mansion, which uh, he's an executive producer of. Um, I think that's uh, one of the films that's coming out of Sundance, I want to say. And let me just tell you, what a wackadoo little movie that's going to be. Um, I mean, anyone who's curious to just watch the trailer for Sun- Strawberry Mansion, and you'll know exactly what I mean. When I say wackadoo, you're like, oh, I don't even know if that just defines it well enough. I mean, it's pretty crazy. Um, but anyway, he's he's one of the producers on it. So I wonder if they serve. I, I wonder if they serve licorice pizza in the kitchen of Strawberry Mansion. <laughs> okay, you laughed too hard for that joke. That's more than it deserved. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> well, let's. Okay, so Tom Hanks. I mean, yes, he's perfect. Absolutely perfect in the film. Let's talk about Elizabeth Perkins um, playing Susan in this. Um, how does she work for you? Well, I mean, she's just so great. <laughs> she's so great. Uh, I, I and I think she works really perfectly the way she she, you know, her character sort of responds to events around her um, that you I find her sort of reprehensible at the beginning. But by the time they're working late and she's carrying that the box of Oreos and crackers back into the office, in uh, you know, with her, you know, sort of padding barefoot through the, the building, uh, I it's it's hard not to have a crush on her. And then by the time she has to let go of Josh, uh, she, I think especially in the extended edition for me uh, to not feel completely heartsick for her. And uh, so I I loved it. it. Yeah, I mean, she's so easy to fall for in this. And initially, yeah, it's just because she's she's a, the, a cute woman at the office and, and she catches his attention. And I love how that works. But the way that it evolves and the way her relationship, and I, I just find her to be such an interesting character because as we learn through Paul, she's kind of one of those people who's been sleeping her way to the top, right? Mm-hmm. As he's kind of rattling off the list of names. I mean, that's very reflective of her character. And you can see that when she gravitates to Josh at the party and goes home with him. And But how that starts evolving really from that point, right? Like Mm -hmm. the ejection seats that they have and then everything in the the house. Like the trampoline is just like one of the perfect movie scenes. I just – I've always loved the way that that is a place for her to like – she starts breaking through, you know, her inner child starts coming out and she actually starts enjoying herself and finding, finding that sense. And, uh, it's just, it's a magical scene. And of course, I mean, Barry Sonnenfeld, geez, you got to give him some credit for just the magic he infuses in the film. Like the way he shoots that with kind of like the bouncing of the, the actors as they're talking on Mm -hmm. on the trampoline, jumping up and down. And then that magical, like, I love it through the window. where It's like, I don't know. I don't feel safe. The idea of like jumping on a trampoline right next to windows on a, you know, way up at a, <laughs> a building. It's like, that's yeah. a little. That seems daunting. so dangerous. Yeah. I did not care for that. Do you, I mean, how I, I didn't see any <laughs> of the production of that scene behind the scenes, but how long do you imagine it took them to shoot that such that the actors were bouncing perfectly long enough to get consistent takes? Like, I could just imagine them being a disaster to shoot because the second they get off, they're, you know, sending the other person to the moon. Right, exactly. Um, it was a shot that Penny Marshall, she talks about it in one of the making ofs, and she's uh, she, you know, really wanted that shot. They didn't have time or budget, but she 
kind of forced the issue because she just thought they needed it. And, um, and she, it sounded like it was very complicated because she's like, you know, talking on her walkie. Okay, Tom, to the left a little bit, to the left, jump higher, jump higher, mm-hmm. arms out. You know, and like, I can't even imagine trying to direct that and getting the people to do exactly what they need to do so you can capture it through, uh, through that exterior. Yeah. Very tricky. But it works. It's, it's just such a great moment. That scene sets up uh, some great comedy around their romance together, which is, um, which is, I think, you know, perfect, like chef's kiss perfect when he, when they have that, that knowing look and it turns out they're knowing about different things and he runs and jumps onto the top bunk while she's on the bottom bunk I trying to, be to on look top, right? sultry. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was so great. Um, I wonder uh, what is your take on the the arc of their romance over the rest of the movie? And, and did it change in the with the addition of the directors or the extended edition? You know, I I don't know if it if it changed that much. Um, like her arc definitely is fleshed out more, but I think their romance works just really well in in both versions. And I think it it makes a lot of sense. Like the fact that. You know, he comes at it like a kid initially, but then he does, you know, he, it turns into an actual romance. And that moment where, you know, they actually like are connecting at, in her place and, you know, she's taking her clothes off and the way that he kind of, um, you know, grabs her breast. And it just like it it felt like a kid, like that first time sort of thing, like he played it so well. Yeah. Now, yes, he's 13, and there's this whole creep factor now when you start thinking about this. But in context... So don't of, think about it. That's the answer. So don't think about it, exactly. But in context of, like, the fantasy element of the story, and here you have Tom Hanks, you know, doing it, it, it ends up, like, it feels like a natural fit for kind of like this first-time experience. And the way that he develops his relationship, and, and that moment when she's talking to him, and she's like, what are we doing here? And he just like starts hitting her with a magazine. And, like, yeah. They they just kind of like start tussling. It's just like it just it I don't know. It just felt like very natural, especially because it's never like you know that I love you sort of stuff, which I I would have I think had a harder time hearing a thirteen year old kind of like having those I love you sorts of conversations because it never quite turns into that. You know. Yeah, I agree with that. I I was just I think the real question is how like in that scene, which is, again, to your point, perfect. Oh, yeah. Did they consummate their relationship? And I think they I think they did. Okay, and that's 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 why he's like high fiving everybody at work the next day. Yeah, right. (laughs) Of course. That's like like, that's like in in full Tropesville. And and so I feel like they absolutely did. And. That's okay with me, even knowing that he is emotionally a 13-year-old. Yeah, and I, I and I think, you know, when you think about it from Susan's perspective, like, you know, as a viewer, like, when she really learns that he's 13, like, she accepts it. She, you know, finds him at the Zoltar, your wishes come true, and she's completely accepted it. She, she understands what she's done, and she's like, I can't believe that I did that. Like, I think there's a sense of kind of shock. And that's why I think it works so perfectly when they're in the car later. And this is why I end up finding it all plays authentically, because as he leans in to kiss her, she kind of like tilts his head down and kisses yeah. his forehead. Which it's is like, so that's what sweet. You, that's what that's what I'll give you. You know, and yeah. that whole like, I'll, you know, maybe wait, call me in 10 years. Like yeah. that whole thing. It works uh, the way that they chose to tell that story. 
I think so too. Okay, good. I'm yeah, glad we. Yeah. I'm glad we agree. Yeah, yeah. How about Rob, Robert Loja okay. as a as kind of a, a non uh, threatening villain? Yes, <laughs> I'm really glad we get, because he's. I would love to do a double feature of this and Lost Highway just to yeah. get two completely different <laughs> Robert Loja things. <laughs> this is perfect, Robert Loja. It's perfect, Robert Loja, because he's not the villain, right? He's not the villain yeah, at all. They yeah. set him up and cast him, I think, because we know him as the villain. But he's not the villain. He ends up being, you know, the, a, a true supporting character for Josh in, in his journey. And another a, another way that Josh is a channel back to his youth, a reminder of what he stands for as the CEO of this company, and that they together become this this fight through the um you know, the wall of of kind of MBA mentality that has taken over uh, in 80s Macmillan toys. And I think that was great. So happy to, to see the way that played out. And of course, I don't care how many times I have seen the uh, chopsticks on the giant FAO Schwartz piano scene, how incredibly iconic that scene has become. It is still absolutely joyful it it is electrifyingly happy uh to to watch that sequence it's perfectly shot it's per the sound is perfect their dance moves are fantastic it feels completely improvised and yet perfect 100 percent. it's interesting robert loja you know he talks about like what a shock it was to be offered this part because it is so different from all the stuff that he's done like the serious cop roles or the mm -hmm. you know mafia roles whatever it was that he had done before um he had a great time doing this and he he seemed a little kind of giddy at the fact that <laughs> of all the things that he's known for like this dance scene that he and tom hanks do on the piano he's like I, I'm getting cut into dance like montages next to like Fred Astaire and here I am <laughs> on this piano. He's like, it's very strange, but I, I, I don't know. I think that there's something kind of cool that he, um, you know, that he has that moment and it is yeah. perfect. And it's funny because the two of them were so adamant about doing it. Um, but you know, the, the studio and everyone like were, they were nervous. And so they actually had. They brought in some some people who like some dancers who had trained and stuff just in case these two couldn't do it. But they they worked at it and they wanted it to be a little not quite rehearsed feeling. And so it, it, that's what I love about it is it just as they're playing, it's just like the notes are, you know, not always quite kind of hitting at the same time, but it just it flows so naturally. Yeah, it's just a delight. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. One of just you know, cinema's great moments. Well, there are other little moments like that that sort of echo it. After that scene happens, the way Josh changes in the building, that he's the one who's wearing jeans and an open button-down shirt, that he's the one who's constantly, the only one ever actually playing with toys, um, again, feels just perfectly improvised for that character and and also, uh, I, I think, just builds on the message that we need, that thematic message of just finding your youth. And and as a, as a bellwether for other characters in the film, who discover their own little bits of inner joy by the orbit, the degree to which they orbit Josh, um, you know, his assistant, the other assistants in the room, her, you know, Elizabeth Perkins assistant, um, Elizabeth Perkins, as she interacts with some of the other staff, like you get to see the impact that Josh's youthfulness has on helping others find theirs. 
And yeah. I think that was not too heavy handed. Right. Like certainly not no. um, not hit over the head with a, a giant, you know, FAO Schwartz hammer. It, it felt right. earned. Yeah, it's funny because if you see if you see like people in real toy companies, they kind of all act like Josh. So it's kind of funny. It's like that they made it so corporate because in reality, they're very they're they're a little more playful, you know. And yeah. So I think yeah. they took it. I mean, purposefully for the film, they wanted it to go kind of the other way. But I think that works so much in kind of the theme, as you were saying, and and you see how Macmillan recognizes that in Josh, like at the piano scene when he's like he realizes. This guy needs to be doing something more important in my company other than just entering data in the computers. And and how it affects people like John Hurd, who are the by the numbers people. Yeah. And 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 how angry Paul gets because he looks at Josh as this threat. And like, where did he come from? Is he from Coleco? You know, like this whole yeah. thing. But in reality, it's just like this is just a person who who understands what kids are looking for. And it's not just about the numbers and stuff. And the whole thing with John Hurd or with Paul and the building robot that he's doing. <laughs> I just, I laugh so much because I'm right there with Josh. It's like, who wants to play with a skyscraper that turns into a robot? Like, why? What is that? Well, oh, it's so true. And it's just, it's showcase those scenes when he, when he turns to Josh and says, you know, well, if you just read the numbers <laughs> and hands him a piece of paper and Josh like turns it over, like it showcases how stupid <laughs> the company has become at embracing, like that's the, that's the part I love so much. And, and, you know, at, we're both educators and <laughs> spent some time teaching at the university level. And I, taught in the MBA program for 15 years. And this is the kind of in, inanity that you're just trying to avoid, like get the advanced business degree and do so with some humanity. Otherwise, Penny Marshall will lampoon you. Uh, you'll be the target of this ridiculous movie. It is so, so stupid the way they run these meetings and that a 13 year old could come in and, um, you know, shake things up. The way he does by just saying, I don't get it, is awesome. I think it's awesome. It Again, it just, it is so joyful, uh, the way she sends up culture like this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and you're saying she, but I mean, I think, you know, we really, we haven't even mentioned uh, Gary Ross and Ann Spielberg, but we absolutely need to. As the yeah. screenwriters uh, and and just like the brilliance that they... Um, came up with with this script. And it's really fun listening to the two of them talk about it, how Gary Ross kind of hit on this idea just at a, at a very randomly, but then it's just like, oh, that like, you know, that could actually work. And then he kind of pitched it to her. And it sounds like the two of them just like, it was just a snowball effect of just like this, oh, and this, and this. And like, they just like, they said that they had the whole thing in a very short time. And then, of course, the rewrites were well over a year. But they the the core was there that they were able to sell to Gracie uh, Gracie Films and mm -hmm. uh, and and I think the magic right out of the gate the two of them found and created and uh, I mean you can feel it it's just it's a kind of a palpable sense of the effectiveness of the story yeah yeah absolutely I I just I I look at this and and back to to Jared Rushton as as Billy like when you look at the way his character was written. Um, in just anger and grief and the parallel with 
Josh's mom, played brilliantly by Mercedes Rule, that, I, I guess, if I'm going to be frustrated by anything in this movie, it's that the the mom was so relegated to, you know, back in the suburbs. I struggled with that. I don't know how I would have done it differently, though. I mean, this is that's not what the movie is about. It's not about the grief, but it's hard for me to watch this movie and not think about her and what she and and the father are dealing with, that their son has been gone for weeks. Um, but I, I, I do think some of that load is has been written into Jared Rushton's character and and rightfully so that he gets to carry the the weight of both grieving the true loss of his best friend and the lie that he knows the truth and can't talk about it. And when we have that scene, and I think this is an extended edition scene when they have the the rope police system between the two rooms and the mom and and uh, Billy are talking to one another. Is that extended edition or is that in the movie? Uh, no, the scene's in the movie, but the added part is when she sends over um, the thing. The baseball for, card. Uh, for, yeah. And it's just like, why don't you keep it? No, you he'll be back soon like that. That was the added part to that particular scene. But the scene's there in the film. Yeah. Well, I just love that scene because I think it, it gets to show like both sides of, of that grief. And it's just I, I think it's sort of perfectly written, uh, even though it is yet a rem- another reminder that we've been ignoring Mercedes rule for the last hour. You know, I mean, it's I, I find that a little bit. Maybe it's just as a dad, but that's not what the movie's about, right? So, no, yeah, it's Josh's story. I mean, we're with Josh for this, and it's not the story of you know. Um, I mean, we've seen prisoners. We we know the story of parents whose kids go missing. Yeah, <laughs> like, right. You know the 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 tragedy because uh, then yeah, then it's a totally different, much more tragic film of parents who are yeah broken at the loss of their child, and it, it takes away the the romantic comedy fantasy element of this movie. Like that would just be gone. Yeah. Totally. It would be gone. Although that would be an interesting film to take a prisoner's type of movie and intercut it with a big type of story. Like maybe their <laughs> their daughters actually had just grown up and were off having a rom-com romp in the city. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's exactly it. <laughs> wow. Totally. Totally paints a whole new... Isn't that, though, isn't that effectively uh, it? Chapters one and two? Like, isn't... Like, if you think about uh, some of those kids and their relationship with their parents <laughs> growing up, I I think that would have been that might have been satisfied me. I just need to go watch those movies again. Um, <laughs> I, I do. I think it, the movie walks a fine line. Uh, that That's what I'm saying. It walks a fine line. It, well, it, it does. But I, well, I don't even know if it's walking the fine line so much as just saying, you know, there's a line over there. We can we can see the fine line over there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. We're, we're not going to go close we, to it, but we, we acknowledge we'll let you it. see it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. How nice was it seeing uh, John Lovitz pop up? Uh, you know, he and Tom Hanks, of course, had some great bits on Saturday Night Live that yeah. always cracked me up. But um, he, he's one of those bit players that is just so fun to see. Slow down. Slow down. <laughs> I thought that was really great. Uh, he's oh. really great. Again, a, a cultural, a, a bit of cultural satire that I thought was was really nice. Fun to see him. What's your sense of Penny Marshall as a director? Like, are you are you a big follower? I mean, obviously, Penny Marshall, Laverne and Shirley, she's been around for a very long time. And she actually knew Tom Hanks from their days on the Paramount lot when he was doing Bosom Buddies and she was um, still doing Laverne and Shirley. 
after um, I think six or seven years, something like that. But oh, um, what's your sense of her uh, as a director? Oh, I, I, well, I love Penny Marshall, and I, I think that, um, you know, her. We, I feel like we, we've got a um, little series building around her now that we've we've got a league of their own and we're gonna have awakenings and we've got big um you know as a a a director i think she has a really smart and i don't want to say sedate sense of comedy but it's it is um you know her direction is the straight man to the jokes on screen and i think it's I, i think it's really smart i uh i feel like there are others other movies that i would love to talk about of hers um i think like my memory of for example renaissance man uh is that it was funny i don't remember if it was a league of their own funny it seemed kind of goofy enough but um you know maybe maybe it was maybe it was a funny bit of comedy the preacher's wife riding in cars with boys i uh, like i just don't remember um renaissance man very well the one that um i loved as a kid and i watched um all the time was jumping jack flash um yeah <laughs> which was i i that's one of those i worry about going back and, and revisiting because i, I wonder too. if it actually holds up but oh my god Whoopi goldberg like i saw that so many times as a kid it was one of those ones i taped off of hbo and just would mm-hmm. watch all the time and loved it um uh, yeah, it makes me a little nervous, but I I think my memory of the preacher's wife is that it was just a it was one of those that probably you know it it was a bit much Whitney Houston it was a bit much and that, I never that's one I never ended up um, seeing I know yeah. it was a um, well I mean it was a remake of um, the Bishop's Wife which which we've talked about so I mean we certainly have space for, to do that one on our show as the movies and the remakes. Yeah, especially because, I mean, it's got two other people in there with Denzel and uh, Courtney B. Vance that we like very much. Um, but it, I don't have great memories of it. But riding cars with boys, I do. And I really, you know, Drew Barrymore can can ha- uh, have a solid turn. And I, it's just been a long, long time since I've seen it. Um, David Moscow's so. in that one, too. Yep. Yes, yeah. indeed. And Steve's on. Not a lot. Only seven films that she directed. So it's yes. not a big list of projects. I mean, she did some TV, um, but mostly oh, she did a documentary in 2020. Um, it must have come out um, shortly after she when did she die? It was just um, right around 2018. So it must have come out after the fact, but it was um, called Rodman about um Dennis Rodman, and he apparently told her he didn't trust or want anyone else to tell his story. <laughs> wow. I, wow. Okay. What? I'm very, very curious about what? that one now. <laughs> I remember when this came out, uh, and I didn't, I didn't watch it. It's a 7-1 on the IMDb scale, six-star <gasps> scale. Like, that's, that's stellar. Is it stellar for the story? Is Rodman overstating his story right now is like cultural importance. I don't know. Uh, but I, I would be worth, I think it would be worth seeing just because of, uh, her involvement in it. Wow. Interesting. Very interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, so we, we talked a little bit about Barry Sonnenfeld. Absolutely. Uh, an important, uh, amazing. Interestingly, apparently Penny Marshall wanted him fired about a week into production, but the studio wouldn't let her. 
I don't know why. What she was she thinking? Like that makes no sense to me. I don't know enough of that story. That's just one of those sketchy IMDb trivia things that you look at and you're like, huh, okay. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how that would have made any sense because the way that he crafts shots. Oh, there's another scene that I was looking at. I'm like, God, Barry Sonnenfeld. Of course, you'd shoot it this way. It was when. Um, I think it was the night after or the morning after the the party when Susan is driving to work with Paul and the way that he shoots it is like is singles and you have, you know, we're looking at Susan in the passenger seat, but she's pressed all the way over to the, the right side of the frame. And then we cut to Paul and he's all the way on the left side of the frame. So they're both in like these giant empty spaces of the rest of the frame. And it's just like, what a fantastic way to kind of craft this this void that has kind of um appeared between these two characters and just like moments like that oh and there's another like brilliant moment like when they kiss on the on the dance floor with kind of that lawrence welk music playing yeah and they kiss and it instantly cuts to a reverse shot of them um and it's just like this brilliant like in in the exact opposite positions of each other and then it starts spinning around them and it's just like there's like a beautiful way to kind of like create this like flurry of like this vertigo moment as they have that moment on the dance floor it's just so great it's so beautiful and in contrast to that go go to the um uh the bully uh hand whatever sport is that racquetball some sort of weird handball paddle sport on when uh, was, we get our is it squash i don't know that was not squash uh john heard is uh they're fighting over the ball give me the ball give me the ball and it, it's shot so straight uh, like it's, it, it could have very easily become an action sequence and it's shot uh you know mostly wide and you get a real sense of how funny it is and how stupid they look by not judging the scene with the camera yeah and I thought that was really smart. Let them be stupid on their own. Well, and let let them, mostly it's Paul who's being stupid, and he is being very kind of bully brat yeah. Yeah. in that moment, you know? And uh, it just it plays really well. Love that. Yeah. Mm. I, I have to bring up Howard, uh, Howard Shore, who did the music for the movie. Yes. Fantastic uh, music in this. I've always loved the themes. Um, throughout the whole film, and I love the way he integrates heart and soul. I love the way he integrates. Um, oh, what's that other song that he integrates into the score? I'm blanking right now. Um, it'll come to me, but uh, like it's just it's very sharp. But that Zoltar theme, like it's like it it sends shivers down my spine. Like uh, I don't know what that instrument is, but that like like that. Yeah. Oh, it's just so good. That music is just fantastic. It is. And, it, it, you know, sitting with with my family, neither of them are real connoisseurs of, of you know, film scores. Both of them look at me and are like, oh, where have we heard this? I'm like, you've heard it here. You've heard it a lot of other <laughs> places, but mostly you've heard it all here. It has become iconic. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's a lovely, lovely score. It's in every one of us. That's the that's the at the end that kind of it's in every one of us. Um, yeah. Music is kind of integrated into the score. Uh, just uh, it's awesome. We've got some uh, alternative casting universe. Yeah. So um, interestingly, um, I mean, you know, uh, like I said, the the Ross and Spielberg um, got uh, partnered with uh, Gracie Films very early on with this. Uh, but then they took a little uh, while figuring out how it was going to go. I guess Steven Spielberg signed on for a little bit, but then his uh, his son was born. And so he pulled out. But when he was uh, on board, he wanted Harrison Ford to play Josh. Um 
it went, you know, a few other directors looked at it. Ivan Reitman, John Landis, Richard Donner, Frank Oz, Amy Heckerling, John Hughes. A lot of really interesting names, especially Ivan Reitman, having just uh, lost him. Uh, by the time this comes out, it will be, um, you know, a couple weeks now. But um, uh, but then, yeah, when uh, Penny Marshall came on, one of the first people that ended up being on board was Robert De Niro. Um, <laughs> she actually thought of Tom Hanks right away uh, because, as I said, they knew each other from the Paramount lot. But he was his schedule was all busy with um, a punchline, and I can't remember what the other one was, but he was a uh, dragnet, and he was he was tied up on those projects. And so they got Robert De Niro on board, um, and you know he read opposite um, Elizabeth Perkins, and uh, but then I guess his fee was too high, and so he ended up falling out. And I mean, John Travolta was interested, but at this time, and we talked about this on our "Look Who's Talking" episode, he was considered box office poison, so they didn't want him. Other names that had I, I don't know in consideration, they were interested. Um, you know this the. the Producers were interested, but the actor wasn't. All sorts of stuff. But Harrison Ford, Dennis Quaid, Steve Gutenberg, Bill Murray, Judge Reinhold, Michael Keaton, Albert Brooks, Robin Williams, John Goodman, Gary Busey, Jeff Bridges, Andy Garcia. I have to read this because this was a, a sad state of things. Uh, Andy Garcia read for Josh, but one of the studio executives didn't want to spend $18 million for, quote, a kid to grow to be Puerto Rican. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. This oh, was terrible. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, oh, but of course, why Andy would you... Garcia is oh my God. actually Cuban anyway. Um, but wow. Yeah, that's just one of those things. You're like, God, that's just disgusting to hear. The other women, Deborah Winger uh, as Susan, she actually tried to convince them to do it and have her be the one who would grow into an adult at the end or to a kid. To a kid. Uh, yeah. Meg Tilly. Yeah. And then John Lithgow, they talked about as Paul. So, I mean, a lot of interesting names in here. And again, you look at this and it's like everything they did was perfect. <laughs> like they yeah. found magic with this group of people here. That's really interesting. Like I look at all of these names and usually we do this list and, and I can, I can imagine some of them maybe playing this role. I can't imagine, especially Tom Hanks. I can't imagine anyone else playing Josh as an, as a grown up. Yeah. It's very difficult. Very difficult. Deborah Winger. Maybe I could imagine Deborah Winger. Certainly not Meg Tilly. I can imagine Deborah Winger. I guess I can imagine John Lithgow as Paul. I can but, imagine John Lithgow you know, as Paul. John Hurd brings kind of like the, that a little. I don't know. I, I guess I could see John Lithgow kind of pulling the same. Like I don't get it. Like I. You know what the thing is that. about John Hurd though? He he excels at playing generic. Like he is <laughs> he is like the black type on white box kind of baddie in this in this film, and I think that that's what it needs. Uh, yeah. There might be too much yeah. Lithgow character. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, like when John Hurd is talking about seaweed, packages him in seaweed. Yeah, yeah right. Everything right. he does is just like, <laughs> exactly. Oh, that's something that we said far too often when I was young. Package him in seaweed. Seaweed. <laughs> so funny. Oh, God. Uh, what, so the Zoltar, I wanted to talk a little bit about Zoltar. Um, yeah, you have Zoltar some real speaks. Zoltar history. Well, it actually um, it was modeled after a real life machine from the '60s called the Zoltan machine, and um, you know I, I think that it works in context of what they were doing here. I, I think it's a lot of fun. I guess um, there was actual a company that actually got the trademark for Zoltar Speaks, 
um, in 2007 and actually started selling some fortune telling machines. <laughs> I haven't seen any, but like that's super, that's so fascinating to me now that there are actual Zotar speaks out there now. And in context of movies that have influenced things in real life, there's another one. What a strange little thing. That's funny. I guess you do. Um, there was a, a short lived, I think two season show called the order that was on Netflix and, and they have this, place where they store magical artifacts, one of which is a Zoltar machine, and they actually say that it's enchanted. It might make your wishes come true, but Zoltar is a trickster. You're, he might grant your wishes ironically. And so it's kind of funny that they included that in that show. The Order was not a great show. Well, so fewer and fewer people will know about that particular yeah. nod. Yeah. <laughs> You know what? So in in the in the context of credits, one of the other credits that I was really surprised at when I saw this was that Saul Bass did the credits. Like I know. Did you notice credits. any like, Saul Bass uh, Saul Bassery in these credits? I guess it was just the the way the I don't know. I'm like you know. I mean, there's a little bit of kind of an underlining or something with the way the title comes on the screen, but I'm like, it didn't scream out like, oh, this is Saul Bass. You know, it just it wasn't. I don't know. It was, it was very strange to go. Oh. Really? Huh. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Kind of a surprise. Yeah. What about Polly Platt? Yeah. I noticed her as a special thanks at the end. And, you know, she's uh, kind of one of those names that pops up in Hollywood quite a bit. I, you know, I didn't know this, but she was executive producer of Gracie Films uh, from 1985 to 95. And so yeah. I think that's part of it. Like she was working with James L. Brooks in kind of the creation of this company and looking for these great stories. So she did, she wasn't on as a producer, but I guess just her role there and probably just one of the shepherds of the project is, is what got her that special thanks. I don't know how many times I, this is, this must be, there must be a sign because she also uh, wrote a map of the world, Polly Platt, with Sigourney Weaver and Julianne Moore. That's the third Julianne Moore reference today between you and me. We got to do something about Julianne Moore. Hmm. Yes. You don't seem to care as much as I do. We got to talk about Julianne. Signs. No, I love Julianne. I do too. Now we talked about her three times this morning. The first time I remember seeing her, the fugitive. Ugh. I fell in love with her when I saw her in that so movie. So good. I was like, so who is that nurse good. talking to Harrison Ford? I am in love. She did uh, Polly Platt, uh, obviously Polly Platt, I mean, with Gracie Films. We haven't, I don't know that we mentioned her by name, but we've done broad, we did, we didn't do broadcast news. Have we not done broadcast news yet? No, we keep talking about like, um, that would be a great movie to talk about. Yeah. And um, still haven't been but there. But Say Anything and War of the Roses. Uh, we've talked about, I don't think we mentioned she was a, Polly Platt was a producer on those. Yeah. She's, uh, she's one of those people that is involved in a lot of stuff. I think, um, she ended up being involved in, in a lot of stuff more kind of in the back end of things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, frustratingly, I suppose, um, you know, because of her, um, relationship with, um, Peter Bogdanovich. I, I think she kind of came up through the ranks with him and, you know, with everything that happened there, um, never was really able to kind of get, uh, you know, develop, you know, her career quite as much. But yeah. but still, I, I think that she became a person who was like an iconic figure in Hollywood who would help people um, and, and like work with people like Cameron Crowe when he was mm-hmm. doing like Say Anything and stuff like that. And just it became like this this great shepherd of things out there. And I think that's cool. 
Me too. Well, shall we uh, shall we move into yeah. other things? We should. So um, we will be right back, everybody. But first, our credits. The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Orcas, Oriel Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at v-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. Sequels and remakes, what of big say it's not so? Uh, you know, it's it's one of those things, very popular movie, uh, surprised people uh, on its release, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that here in a little bit, but yeah, they uh, tried to make a TV show of this in 1990, they made a sitcom pilot, and it wasn't picked up. People are like, eh, you know, I don't know, it's not that good, so... They dropped it. But then they made a Broadway musical, Big the Musical. Uh, it came out in 96. It ran for uh, not quite 200 shows. Uh, I think it was fairly well received, but it's not one that I hear people talking about. So I think it kind of has fallen off the map a little bit. Then there was the uh, uh, Telugu film Nani that was made in 2004, essentially a remake, um, kind of the same plot. They did change around a little bit. Then uh, Fox uh, made, they said that they were going to make another TV show in 2014 based on the show. I don't know if it ever ended up getting off the air. Um, I think they started doing it and it just never happened. And then there was the movie that was made in 2019 called Little, which is kind of a, a flip on the title. But in that one, um, I believe that it's Regina Hall who um, ends up uh, turning into a child version of herself. So very similar sort of mm -hmm. story. So, um, yeah, it's uh, but we didn't even talk about this, Pete. At the time this movie came out, um, this was the first story. You know how these things are. And then something was in the air. And then all of a sudden, all these other movies started popping up. The same period of time, Vice Versa came out. You remember that one with, um, let's see, Vice Versa was Fred Savage and Judge Reinhold, I believe. Okay. Then there was 18 again with um, McDreamy and George Burns. Yes. There was Like Father, Like Son with um, – who's in Like Father, Like Son? Um, gosh, I can't I, remember. I Maybe that I was that one. Judge Reinhold. I can't remember. Then there was Dream a Little Dream. That's the one with the two Corys. Yeah, Corey Hyham and Corey Feldman. That's like a double whammy, like two people all flip bodies. Dudley Moore and Kirk Cameron, by the way, Like Father, That's Like Son. Like Father – thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um. And then 14 Going on 30, which was a TV movie. Um, and there was an Italian movie called Da Grande, which actually came out right before this. Um, and some people said it was a remake, but um, there was such a short period of time between the two that they just signed it off as coincidence. Again, something was in the air uh, Wait, for these body switching comedies. 14 Going on 30 was a TV movie? That was the, wasn't that the Jennifer no, Garner? You're thinking of. 13 going on 30, which was a movie that came out in the, uh, yes, in, the aughts, in, I believe. in 2004. Yeah. Right. 14 so, yeah. going so, on 30. There was actually a movie <laughs> 14 going on 30. 
<laughs> what? I know. I know. It's so crazy. There it is. It's weird. It's yeah. Paul Schneider. It's it's, it's a strange thing like something just uh, you know it's like the i don't know it seems like why was there so much of this particular thing like when we had snow white movies there were only two when we had asteroid movies there were only two like what was it about this particular thing that made everybody want to do it it's so strange to me that's really funny so strange um but before we before we move too far, I just have to tell you, you need to go look at pictures of Elizabeth Perkins now next to Marsha Gay Harden now. They've grown into each other. I mean, you don't have to do it right now, but I'm telling you, okay. they've grown into each other. If you look at Elizabeth Perkins absolutely could have played Marsha Gay Harden's role as the New York Times reporter in the um, uh, the morning show. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Huh. Crazy. All right. How about award season? This thing win anything? Um, you know, it it did have um, some recognition. Yeah, believe it or not, eleven wins, fourteen other nominations at the Oscars. Tom Hanks was nominated for Best Actor, his first uh, award nomination for this. He did lose to uh, to Dustin Hoffman for Rain Man. I can see that, but I don't know. Now I I'm feeling like I don't know. I think Tom Hanks. Really did a great job with this <laughs> thing here. But still, it's Rain Man. I get it. Yeah. Um, also, uh, Ross and Spielberg were nominated for Best Original Screenplay. They also lost to Rain Man. So there you go. At the Saturn Awards, awards we love those, the uh, Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror, Tom Hanks won Best Actor, Robert Loja won Best Supporting Actor, and it won Best Writing. It was nominated for Best Fantasy Film, but lost to Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Uh, Jared Rushton was nominated for Best Performance by a Younger Actor, but lost... <laughs> Interestingly, to Fred Savage in Vice Versa. <laughs> um, and Robert Zemeckis won for Who Framed Roger Rabbit, beating out Penny Marshall for Best Director. And then in the 2008 Saturn Awards, it was nominated for Best DVD Special Edition release for the Extended Edition, but lost to the Blade Runner 5-Disc Ultimate Collector's Edition. I can see that. Mm -hmm. um, Tom Hanks, uh, you know, he did well. He was he won the at the L.A. Film Critics Awards uh, for Best Actor for this in Punchline. And at the New York Film Critics Circle Awards, he was nominated for Best Actor, but he lost to Jeremy Irons in Dead Ringers, which we've talked about on the show. So, uh, you know, a lot of praise for the movie, a lot of praise for the writing, for the uh, for Tom Hanks. And, um, you know, I, I think largely that's reflective of the quality of the film. But how did it do at the box office? A real stinker, I assume. Yeah, unfortunately. Unfortunately, it didn't do very well. No, of <laughs> course this movie did well. What's funny is you hear them talking about this, and I, I can't remember. Um, Elizabeth Perkins is telling a story about a particular scene that they were filming, and Tom Hanks... Um, or, and like the news had just come out about like all these other movies, these body swapping movies. And, and he looked at, at Elizabeth Perkins and he's just like, we're going straight to video. And just like had no confidence <laughs> in this movie, but he was wrong. Uh, Penny Marshall did get 18 million to make her body swapping rom-com, which is 38.9 million in today's dollars. The movie released June 3rd, 1988 opposite funny farm and the decline of Western civilization. Part two, the metal years. This film opened in the number two spot, unable to unseat Crocodile Dundee 2. 
but it did manage to stay in the top five for seven weeks. This movie did gangbusters, becoming the 10th highest grossing film of the year, earning $115.2 million domestically and $36.7 million internationally for a total gross of $328.2 million in today's dollars. That lands Marshall's film with an adjusted profit per finished minute of almost $2.8 million. A handsome turn for the movie and an absolutely solid star-making turn for Hanks. That is fantastic. But it does say some things that are uncomfortable for me to remember about Crocodile Dundee 2. How did this movie not unseat Crocodile Dundee 2? Do you forget how much people were in love with Crocodile Dundee in the 80s? I do. I forgot that. You forget that. Wait until we do the Crocodile Dundee movies. Are we going to do that as part of our franchise? We're going to do the Crocodile Dundee movies? We're going to do the Crocodile Dundee movies. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'll put them on the list. There you go. Adam That's on the a list. knife. One more thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I love this movie. I'm glad we finally were able to uh, shoehorn it in here, even if it had to come by way of a, of a small part antagonist. Uh, I'm glad we got it on the list. Small part antagonist, but an unforgettable performance in that role by beloved John Hurt. Beloved. Rest in peace. Well, we will be right back for our ratings. But first, here's the trailer for next week's movie, Penny Marshall's Awakenings. You will be working with patients, people, doctor. When you say people, you mean living people? You do want the job, don't you? Hi. I'm Dr. Thayer. I'm Wahida. Wahida. I'd like to ask... I was born in 1911 in Kingsbridge, New York. Prior to July 1955, I resided the Brooklyn Psychiatric Center, Brooklyn, New York. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. (laughs) Prior to that, I was a person. It gets easier. You don't think it will, but it does. Can you hear me? Does he ever speak to you? Of course not. Not in words. No change in day to 9-11-44. Your patients, doctor, haven't moved in decades. What I believe, what I know, is these people are alive inside. How do you know that, doctor? I know it. I just wanted to say to you, I preferred your explanation. At 200 milligrams, he showed no response. Maybe he needs more. Maybe he needs less. Dr. Thayer, it's a miracle. Where my glasses? Put on your face. I could deal with losing 30 years of my life, could you? Have you thought what you'd like to do today? Everything. Leonard, where are you going? I would do all the things that you people take for granted. I'd go for a walk. I'd look at things. I'd talk to people. You work here? No, I live here. You don't look like a patient. (laughs) I don't? Girls. You're not married. Me? Would you like to go out for a cup of coffee?
All right, Andy, uh, we've got Letterboxd. Uh, is it, 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 I mean, are there any surprises in store? Uh, is this a three-star quibbles, or how do you handle this? This, <laughs> I, you know, this is, this is such an easy five-star and a heart movie for me. So yeah. easy, uh, you know. Anyone who knows me or has heard me gushing about it for the last hour <laughs> would pretty much be able to figure that one out pretty easily. <laughs> you know, I am I have such shame after watching this movie again last night that I go to my letterbox and see that I have, in fact, already rated it uh, in probably when I first went on my rating bender when you got me into letterbox the first time. Uh, and I rated it four and a half stars. And I can only imagine that is a click error because it should very much be a five star <laughs> film. There's hands down. There's no way this is anything less than a five star film. I get such great joy out of it. And I'm so glad to have been exposed now to the extended edition. I, I really enjoyed my time, my extra half hour with all of these people. Yeah. I will just point out, I could not find anywhere that the extended edition was like a director approved thing. Like, I, I, I didn't find Penny Marshall talking about it anywhere. Um, nothing was written up about it. So I don't know if it's just something that they had put out there um, and she had said sure, but it wasn't like director you know, approved. But um, just the, as a note, I just wanted to put that out there. Okay. Well, I still liked it. I did too. So there. What did you think about Big? We want to know. Hop into the Show Talk channel on our Discord community, where we will be talking about this movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterbox giveth, Andrew. This letterboxed always do it. Oh dear. Um Letter Letterboxd got, is is a lot of people have issues with yeah. Susan sleeping with a thirteen year old. <laughs> really do. <laughs> really uh it seems to be an issue for a lot of, it seems to be an issue for a lot of people. <laughs> God. Um uh, would you like to you you went low. Would you like to go first? I have a half star by up the films that says <laughs> Tom Hanks doesn't look like he's very big. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> that was well, their, their emphasis, not mine. <laughs> I, uh, I I have a three and a half uh, star from uh, our friend uh, Demia Dijuibe, uh, who says, Watching this movie for the first time in 2018 is bonkers. I really dug it, but so much of the comedy is actually horrifying, and so much of the sentimentality is actually hilarious. What a trip. There's a scene where Tom Hanks walks into his mom house after, mom's house after he'd been magically aged, and she freaks out and backs away, whispering, Please don't, please don't, please don't, as a strange man she doesn't recognize walks towards her screaming, it's me, I'm your son. Also, when they eventually remake this movie, let me write it. I hope it exists in a universe where the movie Big is a thing, and the kid wakes up as the older version of himself and immediately thinks, oh, F, I think I got bigged. <laughs> Worth it. Worth it. Thanks, Letterboxd. <laughs>